swing and a fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner, Conine towards the wall, leaping and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine! Conine swings in the first pitch, high fly ball left field, deep, it's up, up and away, a home run for Jeff Conine! Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. In right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carlos into right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine, I'm Aram Layton. Of course, he's Jeff Conine. It's August 25th. This might go out on the 26th. We'll see how quick we turn it around as we record this around 3 p.m. Jeff, you're back home. You just had a nice little trip to the panhandle to go see your son launch three home runs. And now you came back. So welcome back home. And uh, how was the trip? Uh, obviously, it was a pretty fun trip. Uh, three home runs and three straight at bats, uh, more specifically. But um yeah, he, you know, he calls us, uh, we're about to leave from Miami to go up to Pensacola. And he says, oh, I'm not in the starting lineup tonight. So mm-hmm. they gave a day off on the first day, which, you know, is unfortunate for us. We're making that trip to go see him play. But at the same time, as a player and, you know, when you might be going through a rough stretch, an off day is a welcome breather. And even though they get every Monday off, that's an automatic day off anyway. I think it's more impactful if you get a day off, like, at an actual game day. So he's there at the field, you know, going through his batting practice, things like that, but he knows he can just kind of relax and uh, do his warmups and get his work in without having to worry about the stress of a game. Yeah. I always wondered that. I'm glad you brought that up because I always wondered if it was better to have that day off when you're struggling or just to keep going out there and keep trying and keep trying. Cause there's a level of, you don't play, you're kind of sitting in your own thoughts and everything that goes with that, or is it almost like a reset a little bit? Yeah, it depends. I mean, if you're starting to come out of it and you're feeling better and you know, you're at bat to show that I think, yeah, it would be inopportune to take you out of the lineup then. But you know, if you're in the midst of it and you, the manager can see that you're really struggling and not doing uh, anything that's productive or constructive, that's when they say, you know what, just take a breather today or tomorrow. And you know, I had that happen to me a couple different times in my career, and it was a, uh, a welcome day off. So, what do you tell someone like Griffin, of course, like your son, but any any ball player uh, that's going through a slump? Because slumps are inevitable, right? No matter how good you are, you're going to slump at some point in your baseball career, probably several points. What's the best way? to navigate that in, in your eyes. Of course, you could say stay even keeled, but we, we all have our emotions that come out and, and those are pretty hard to just make go away. Uh, what's the best way to get through a slump like that for maybe some young ball players that may, might be listening or some dads that want to help their sons or moms? Well, I mean, <clears throat> this is the toughest game to play. Hitting a baseball is one of the most difficult things you can do in sports. And when you get your mind into it, Uh, it can be a hindrance and you start thinking too much about, you know, pitch selection and what are my mechanics looking like? And uh, what's the situational hitting going on? There's so many things that can cloud your memory or your mind of just seeing the ball and hitting it. And I think the best hitters have that noise. And when you do that, you're able to actually see the ball better. So for coaches and and parents, I think it's just a, a recognition thing. You can recognize when a player is really starting to struggle just by the the quality of their at-bats. I mean, you're swinging a pitch they don't normally swing at. Uh, They're frustrated. You can tell they're angry. 
all those things. And I think the best thing is just try to know what makes your player tick for one, but just to start peel it back and simplify things, go back to something or trigger words or, or trigger um, drills that will kind of bring back the basics. And Mm -hmm. that for me was, was really what I had to do. I always went to video and I looked at where my front foot was first. And if it was getting down late, I'm like, all right, that's kind of a start because you can't do anything until your front foot hits the ground. Yeah. And then I'd go backwards from there. And then I just try to simplify everything and just try to clear your mind, clear your head, uh, going to batting practice and get the front down front foot down super early and just swing and not really have any thought in your mind, because I think the most successful hitters are the hitters that have lack of thought at the plate rather than uh, an abundance of thought. Yeah, that's the funny thing that we always talk about, right, where it's it's almost this catch 22 of it's good to be a really cerebral player and smart because you can start to try to, you know, think about what the pitcher is going to do and, and how they're going to attack you and all those things. But on the flip side, you can think yourself into a hole and there's that juggle that you have to have there. Uh, I, I wasn't planning on asking you about this, but now it just jogged one of my favorite stories of yours. And uh, you were somebody that, like you said, very stoic on the field very stoic on the field. But like I said, anytime you go through some rough patches, anybody's going to get mad. You were somebody that, correct me if I'm wrong, you like to air it out in private, right? Like that's what you would do. I was kind of the same way when I played. I wasn't going to like freak out in front of everybody, but I'll go back and I'll put my bat through a locker or whatever it would be if if I'm really going through it. The story, I believe you're with the Orioles where you took the bat. You know which one I'm referring to? Oh, yeah. Uh, and can, can you tell that story real quick, uh, just because it's one of my favorites ever? Yeah, you know, it, for me, it was something that I had to get out of my system. I mean, I was very, um, like you said, stoic on the field. Most people would ask me all the time, hey, are you even having fun? Because it doesn't look like you're having any fun out there. And of course, I love playing baseball. I had a blast doing it. But when I didn't get my job done, uh, I was hard on myself and I did not take lightly to that fact when I did not get it done. So we were in, I had just gotten traded to the Orioles. We're in the Minnesota Metrodome and um, you know, it's brand new team. They don't really know me. I don't know them. So when you go down the stairs of the Metrodome from the clubhouse, it was a football stadium. So it was kind of piecemeal together for baseball. When they, when you go down the, the big, huge steps, it had like a massive staircase that went all the way down the field. And so you could see the field from there. And then there's this giant column that basically held up the roof of the Metrodome. And then around that was the dugout. And there was a pathway, there was a hallway, a little tiny hallway before then that you could take a left into the dugout. And if you kept going down that little hallway, it was like where all the grounds crew uh, equipment was, their rakes. I mean, there was only dirt. It was, it was AstroTurf at the time, but there was only rakes and a few shovels and things like that in this skinny little hallway behind the dugout. So often there'd be two chairs sitting next to the on-deck circle, right? When you came down the stairways, and some guys would just sit there and watch the game. So our two trainers were sitting there watching the game uh, this day. And I had a guy on third with, I think, one out. And I ended up popping up to the infield. So obviously, I didn't get my job done. I could have hit it on the ground, possibly. I could have hit a sack fly, base hit, whatever, to score that guy. I did not get him in. So I was mad. I was mad at myself. So I walked by our two trainers, Richie Bansells and Brian Ebel, were sitting there by the on-deck circle. I walked by them and instead of when I went down that little hallway, instead of taking a left to go back in the dugout, I went straight to go where all these 
implements were for the grounds crew. And I took my bat and there was a giant column there about six feet wide of solid concrete that held up the roof of the Metrodome. And I just start wearing this thing out with my bat. I mean, I'm slamming this and pieces of bat are flying off. There's splinters of wood flying off, but this bat would not break. All I wanted to do is break my bat, be done with it and get back to the dugout. So finally, after about, I don't know, eight or nine swings. I could not break this bat. I said, screw it. I flipped around to the, the barrel and I just snapped the handle on the, cause it broke really easy with the handle. I snapped it and threw everything down, went in the dugout and got my glove. And when the inning was over, I went out to my position. So, but it was done. You know, that's how I had to clear my head is I had to let it go, do that. And just, I couldn't let it stew in me. Well, our trainer, Richie Bansells didn't know me at all. So he's leaning up against the wall and he could see he had eyes on me as he's going down this little hallway, as he's leaning against the back wall uh, next to the on or next to the on deck circle. And he is just like, for one, he said he was scared to death because uh, he, I don't think he'd ever seen a player do that to a uh, concrete pillar before. And after the game, the next day, actually, he came up to me and he goes, Niner, he goes, I don't know you very well at all. And I was really afraid to come up to you yesterday because I thought you might stab me with this. But on the in the aftermath of all the shards of wood and everything like that, back then you used ash bats. So ash has grain. So as I was slamming my bat in there, the, the grain that had my signature and the model of my bat completely sheared off. So it almost looked like a, a wood nameplate. It had a uh, genuine C-271 Louisville Slugger, had my <clears throat> signature on there, Jeff Conan at the bottom, and had Baltimore, Baltimore Orioles, like perfectly this size. So he went over there and he's looking at the damage, right, that I created. And he saw that laying on the ground. He goes, oh, my God, this is awesome. So he picks it up and he said, I wanted to show you this yesterday, but I thought you might stab me in the neck with it because you know, I was so mad. Well, I was laughing so hard because of I said, no, dude, dude, seriously, I would have cracked up. That would have made me that would have helped me out a lot because it's funny as hell. And once I'm done with it, once I'm done with it, I'm good. Just show me. You can joke with me all that. So he actually stuck that on his board and in his training in the training room. And that little nameplate uh, sat on his board in the training room for the rest of the year. But so him and Brian Ebel, after every snap that I have, I would I would go out to my position at first base usually. And I'd look in there and I see them disappear into wherever I had my snap because they were doing a little damage assessment to see what you left. So see what I left. So then they would come back out, you know, and I'm after I'm done throwing the ball around something, I'd look in there and they'd give me like a thumbs up, like, yeah, that was a really good one. Or <laughs> like, dude, that was terrible, wasted effort, or that was not, not even worth anything. So we had a good, uh, it was almost like a game to them to kind of go assess the damage that I would cause to whatever it may be a stadium or a bat rack or bats or helmets or things like that. It was, it, it kept me, it kept me, light though you know that was yeah, funny you have to and we had a good time with it you have to it, i was going to say that it would have been funny if the grounds crew started just bringing in objects for you to break each time just <laughs> a new a new punching bag a new thing to break uh, one of the things that has become somewhat of of a business i've seen before is like people will buy old dilapidated cars and you can pay to just take like a sledgehammer to it yeah and that wouldn't that be a before. bad idea that would have been great. Although uh, with a sledgehammer and that kind of weight, I'd probably end up hurting something or tearing something or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Well, well, that was the thing. I was hearing you say that you couldn't break your bat. 
And that was because you swung a freaking log, right? You swung, what was it? What was the size of the bat you swung? Well, at that time, it was probably 34 and a half, 33. But early in my career, I, sw- uh, I swung a, a 35, 35. <laughs> That's actually a log. That is yeah, a true yeah. Actually, I might have one right here that I can show you. Let's because see. these things, um, so these bats were so heavy and so you couldn't break them. I mean, I used like a dozen bats. I'd order a dozen bats for the beginning of the year and I'd still have some left by the end of the year where usually you go through probably a dozen bats a month, you know, yeah. by breaking and, and splintering, whatever. So I would use these things for batting practice, everything. Like a lot of guys have a, a bat for batting practice and they take their gamers their game bats into the game. Didn't matter what these bats I. So this is called a Walker finish. So it's kind of light on the bottom and darker on top. Well, I always kept the label facing toward the pitcher. So when I came through palm up, palm down, it would be hitting with the grain. So these bats, I wore out the varnish. Yeah. So for for those who can't see it, 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 this will be on YouTube as well, but the, the paint is just worn off of the barrel. Well, that's a good place to have the paint worn off, right? You're hitting it on the, you know, that sweet three inches of really where you want to make contact all the time. And I really made an effort to make contact there every time, like during batting practice. So eventually the varnish and the paint just, it wore off. Yeah. It's a black um, bat. And under, you can see the, the true color of the wood uh, under the black. That's now almost shining through. Is there a level of the wood? This is just pure ignorance on my end, but you use a bat long enough. Does it soften up? Does it, does it not have that same amount of, of pop if you're using the same bat forever? Or, or what do you think on that? Some people said that, um, but I didn't, I didn't feel that way. I think maybe if you left it sitting around for too long, they became brittle because some of the moisture would, like in my garage, if I left a bat in my garage for a couple of years and then I tried to use it, they would break really easily because you want a certain degree of moisture in the bat. Yeah. It doesn't make it bendy or anything like that. It just, you know, that's what it keeps it from just chipping up. Right. Yeah. So if you left it in the garage too long, it dries out and then those things break pretty easily. But I never, I never felt like that with any of my bats during a season. So where is that little, to wrap up this story, where's that last little uh, nameplate, little chunk from from your bat? Do you have that? Does the trainer have that? Where is it at? I think Richie still has it. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, I never got it back. And, um, you know, there's only there's only one time I semi-hurt myself on a snap. Um, we were playing in New York, and uh, Ramiro Mendoza, starting pitcher for the Yankees at the time, through a sinker inside sinker all the time. He just wear me out inside sinker. So first at bat, I broke my bat, rolled over to third base, threw me out. Second at bat. I don't know if I, maybe a jam shot. Uh, I don't know if I broke my bat that time or not, but you know, it's just getting old third at bat. He keeps pounding me in there and up fouling ball off my shin. So it's like throbbing like crazy. And then I break my bat didn't crack all the way through, but I broke my bat, another ground ball to the left side. And you were just saying that you never broke your bat. So that had to be one of the few multiple in one game occasions. And this was like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm furious at this point. I'm like so angry. So I take the bat, the, the bat boy had leaned it up against the bat rack because he's not putting back in there because it was cracked. So I wanted to finish the job. So I took the bat and I slammed it against the corner of the bathroom where the door was metal and it, broke but the part that was cracked was right by my hand and it took off this way and it put out a chunk of meat about the size of a quarter just lifted it all up oh so then i'm just i'm pissed and my hand hurts and i go out to first base and i'm throwing the ball around 
And Mike Bordick stopped in the middle of throwing one time and he looks at the ball and he's like, he goes, what the fuck? Like, you know, mouthing, what the fuck's going on? And I'm like, what? And there was blood on the ball because my thing was bleeding so badly. I was, every time I threw it, it'd get blood on the ball. And I realized it was on my uniform and it was a mess. So I came in to the dugout after that half inning. I'm like, Hey, Richie, could you patch me up? He was like, what are you talking about? Well, and I showed him my, I showed him my hand and he's like, what the, what the hell happened? And I told him a little story, but that's the only time I ever drew blood on a did um, stitches. No, I didn't need stitches. Um, I, I kind of, I don't like flaps. So I ripped the flap off. Oh God. And uh, he had to, he had to patch because it was bleeding like crazy. I had to patch it up with some uh-huh. stuff that stopped the bleeding, which hurt like hell. And then he wrapped me up and I had a, you know, I had a bandage on there for two weeks because I had a big divot in my, in my hand. Ow. And that's like in the inside of your hand when you're swinging, right? On contact. Didn't that hurt? Yeah. It hurt a lot. So I didn't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I learned Troy Tulowitzki did that where he swung at a, at a wall, broke the bat on the wall and it splintered and it cut his arm and he missed a lot of time. He, he had to get stitches and everything. So yeah, it's one of those where in the moment you don't care. And then after you're like, why did I do that? Yeah, you know, it, it just, it doesn't feel good, but I, we've all had those moments, but I, I wanted to pivot. So the one thing that we're going to talk about that I'm really excited is you're going to give your all time lineup of teammates where from whatever teams you were with, every player uh, is in their prime. So even if it's Joey Votto from the Reds, let's say, you overlapped with him when he was a child, essentially. He was like 19 years old, 20 years old. I don't know how old he was when he first came up, but that would still count as prime Joey Votto. Like that was the exercise we're doing here. So I'm really excited to hear your lineup before we get to that, because this is somebody that I'm assuming is going to be in your lineup. And I'm going to guess this jersey because this is probably one of the easiest ones. You're rocking a Tigers jersey. It's got to be. Miguel Cabrera, who just hit 500 and 501 uh, just yesterday. Yep. Too easy. Too easy, but you had to. I uh, love oh, he's, he wrote you a little personalized message, too. Yep. Oh, it's the Triple Crown, right? He wrote the little Triple Crown. Yeah, he said, he said to Jeff, you're the best. And then it said uh, Triple Crown, the MVP. Um, and I, I told you about the, the ball, right? So I had a ball that a friend gave me that I'm sure you've probably seen it up here. But uh a friend gave me a baseball signed by Ted Williams, Frank Robinson, Mickey Mantle, and Kari Ostremski. And what do those four gentlemen have in common? Triple crown. They're all triple crown winners. So when Miggy, I got this jersey signed, I brought that ball into the ballpark and he had he added his name uh, to those four guys. So that must have been cool for him. Yeah. You know, I don't even know if he knew exactly what he was doing, but or who those guys were, but, uh, you know, um, I don't know how many he signed like that. Probably not very many, not many. I can but, promise you not many, but that was a cool signature for me to get. And, uh, uh, one of the coolest pieces of memorabilia that I have in my room. Oh, no doubt. I, I, that's one of the coolest pieces I, I, I've ever heard it. And the cool thing about that is you could pass it to your grandkids, and there may not be another signature to be added for it, right? I don't know if anybody's ever going to hit for the Triple Crown again. Maybe it'll happen at some point. Odds are stacked. To get, I mean, look at somebody like Vlad Guerrero Jr. Couldn't be having a much better season. And he's still not going to get the Triple Crown because you have somebody like Shohei Otani doing crazy stuff on the home run side. It's going to be really hard. I'm sure it'll happen at some point in the next 30, 40 years. But there's a good chance that that could be the whole Triple Crown Club even in 20, 30, 40 years from now. And, and that ball will be, I couldn't even imagine how much that the, the value would be on a ball like that, because you talk about generations too. This goes all the way back to what I think the first triple crown would have been 
in like the 30s and then it goes all the way to now. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to to mention as well is how elite his ability to hit was Miguel Cabrera, because not only did he hit for power, but the average combination uh, is just something that you don't see ever anymore. And, and even we haven't seen in the history of the game. Uh, when we talk about 500 home run club members that have hit over 310 in their career, it's Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Jimmy Fox, Manny Ramirez, and Miguel Cabrera. That's it. That That's is it. it. That's a pretty elite club. That's a and pretty darn elite club. Albert Pujols, I'm sure, was in there at when he first got to 500. Exactly. Um, he has since not uh, been average-wise up there to keep his average above 310. But, you know, we talked about uh, Albert and the dominance he had for those 10 seasons, 11 seasons that he played in St. Louis. Miggy was right there with him. You know, he had 10, 11 seasons where he was as dominant a player as you could get. Average was off the charts, home runs, RBIs. This guy did it all. And when you think about, when I think about the two guys that I would say are the greatest right-handed hitters that I played against, I uh, got to play with Miggy, played against Albert, of course. Uh, those two guys were absolutely remarkable, not only in their ability to hit, but uh, their ability to walk, their ability to hit the ball to all fields, uh, to hit the ball out of all parts of the ballpark. Uh, they didn't strike out much either. You're talking about power hitters that, you know, obviously are the elite power hitters of all time. They've rarely strike out. I don't think Pujols has ever struck out more than 100 times in a season, which is insane. And I think Miggy's probably the same. The, the amazing thing about that is, I don't know if either one of them would tell you that they're a power hitter. I watched an interview with Albert Pujols in his prime saying, no, nah, I'm a line drive hitter. You know, in, in the interviewer was kind of laughing, but he's like, no, that that's what I, that's what I get in my head is that I I'm a line drive hitter that hits home runs. And you can kind of see that though, in his approach, right? Because he's not taking these huge hacks, these massive swings going pull side, right? He's trying to hit the ball hard. And he's got so much power that it gets out. I mean, how often did Albert Pujols hit the moonshot home runs? They were generally just line drives that just never stopped. And it's funny because now you see a lot more of the, the moon launching home runs. And we talk about launch angle and all that stuff. And I just went to the Mets game and it was terrible. It was fun because, <laughs> you know, I, I'm rooting for the Giants and they won 8-0. But my gosh, I've never seen more terrible at-bats just consecutively than the Mets uh, in that ball game. I mean, talk about squandering hitters counts, swinging out of the zone to an O. Javi Baez, I sent you the video, missed a pitch by about two feet. And it's just, again, not everybody's going to be able to hit like Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols, but it's just a microcosm. As I was watching Miguel Cabrera tape all that day as I was writing my piece about him, and then I go watch Javi Baez, who I really think could be a phenomenal hitter if he toned it down. But there's a level of, I don't even think he cares that he strikes out. Because he takes these huge swings, even with two strikes, or it was a 3-1 count, runner on third base, less than two outs, and you think he just want to put it in play, he takes a massive swing and rolls over on it, right? Is there almost no accountability for strikeouts at this point? That is that why we're seeing guys just continue with these approaches even through the slumps and stuff? Well, I think it's uh, a kind of a product of the game, too. The game itself is that there was such a premium hit or put on power and home runs that – organizations didn't care about strikeouts. When you look at the way they're teaching swings now, and even some kids, the youth coaches are teaching this launch angle swing, which is a very shallow into the zone, out of the zone, so you can get that up angle to catch the ball and hit it in the air. 
that lends itself to a lot of strikeouts because your, your, your bat's not in the zone for very long. So you're going to swing and miss a lot. Whereas in old days, they were like, they wanted you to keep the barrel in the zone as long as you possibly could. I mean, the best guy I ever saw it, that was George Brett. His, his bat head stayed in the zone. It seemed like for uh, two seconds, it was crazy how long his bat stayed in through and how long a path that that bat head would create by staying in that zone. And that's why he was one of the greatest hitters of all time. And that's how you create backspin. Well, they got this idea in their head that they want to hit fly balls now, and they get this shallow, scoopy swing that will probably lead to more home runs or hit the ball in the air more, but it also leads to a lot more swings and misses and strikeouts. So when you look at both Miggy and Pujols, they were the type of hitters that their bat had stayed through the zone so oh, yeah. long. Uh, Pujols especially, man. He had that wide spread out swing. His hands were way back. It was like he was pre-swatted almost, and it would just be a direct path, right? It was like he would almost be pre-swatted straight through, so simple. And very, very simple. And he never changed. You no. know, you never see, you never saw that guy like go through radical swing changes or not even stand a up straight or he found something that worked for him and he stayed consistent. Miggy too. Miggy's swing is very similar to when I played with him, you know, 20 years ago in 2003, his swing has not changed that much. And these guys know they've got that confidence in their mechanics, their confidence in their setup that this is who I am. This is who I'm going to stay. And that's why they're so successful. And to, to just wrap up on Miggy, you know, where do you think he ranks, you know, in terms of all-time players? I mean, we're talking about a top 20 hitter maybe ever. Is, oh, that, absolutely. is that too far to say? No? No, not at all. When you combine uh, every aspect of the game and, and the skill that he had as far as uh, low strikeout rate, high walk rate, uh, power average, all fields. He's one of the most dangerous hitters I've ever played against and, and maybe in the history of the game. And not to mention that he did it in Comerica Park for most of the time and and even pro player, right? Joe Robbie, whatever it was at the time. That was a hard park to hit in too, right? I mean, that that's that's a pitcher's park. It was. I mean, you looked at, you know, everyone thought about the short wall in left field and yeah, that was, uh, you had to get it up in there to get it over it. But from left center over to right field, that was a monstrous ballpark. We had 434. They called the Bermuda Triangle out there. And it would jet straight away center, which was the longest, I think, in baseball at that point. And then it was 345 down the right field line, and it went out to 380-something in the gap. I mean, that was a huge ballpark. And, you know, he was a guy that hit the ball the other way a lot. So he had mm-hmm. a lot of home runs there opposite field. I think he could have probably had another 60, 70 homers if, if he played. And I noticed that. I remember – he adjusted his approach a little bit as he got a, a couple years into his career where even more so he was hitting for average. I remember one year he hit 322, 330, and the, the, the home runs went down a little bit. I think he only hit 22 home runs one season, but he was hitting for more average because he's like, you know what? I'm not going to leave the yard here every time, but I might as well split the gaps and, and win a batting title when he won several. So to wrap up, the last segment here is, is your team. Your all-teammate team, I guess is what we'll call it. And let's start with... Uh, Let's start with the infield. So let's go from from shortstop. Actually, how do you want to do that? You want to go from third base around to first base and then back to catcher? Let's start with whatever you want to do. Whatever. This is your show, Arm. Whatever you want to do. Oh, it's outside the box with Arm Layton? Well, I mean, you're the host. (laughs) You should be both. No, I know. I know. It's outside the box with Jeff Conine. So we're going to start with third base, let's say. Because I know you actually secretly played a little bit of third base. I didn't even know that until I checked yeah. the game logs not I too long like ago. like 50 games one year at third base. Um, Crazy. Which was, which was scary. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that another time for sure. Yeah, another time. And and maybe actually we'll just forget about that because I don't want to talk <laughs> about third base. 
Um, so who's playing third? Yeah, we're going to go around the horn. And, and these are guys that aren't necessarily the best players that I ever played with, but you know, you're talking about teammates, those guys that, that, you know, that gamers in my mind that are, that are responsible players. They took responsibility on the field. They took responsibility in the clubhouse. They're leaders. Um, you're trying to win a championship. So that, that's didn't necessarily that's mean they're team guys, you know, it didn't necessarily mean they're the best players on the field, but they fit into the system. They, they were, uh, to be counted on every single day, all the time. It was just one of those kind of guys that you want to play with. You want nine of them on your team on the field every day. Um, so I'm going to start where we start at third base. Yeah, let's start at third. I'm going to start with Mike Lowell at third base. Uh, just, uh, one of the most quality teammates I've ever had most quality guys, obviously a gold glove winner at third base. Uh, one of the most consistent, um, fielders I've ever seen, you know, and I will say that that Marlins team in 2003 was the best infield that I'd ever seen put together with Mike Lowell at third, Alex Gonzalez at short, Luis Castillo at second and Derek Lee at first. Unreal. You're not, get, you're not getting a better infield than that. That I've Pudge behind the dish. Pudge Rodriguez. I mean, it was a joke. It was a joke. Our defense was a joke. And I think, you know, if you look at the numbers, we probably had the least amount of errors of any team in the National League. We led. We think we were one and two in fielding percentage. And that was a big reason for our success. Absolutely. I mean, the confidence that that would instill in a pitcher and young pitchers that were, that were on the bump for that team. So let's go to shortstop. This is an important position. We talk about premium positions. Here's a premium one. Premium positions uh, with a premium guy that, you know, I've talked about him before. Uh, Mike Bordick at shortstop uh, with the Baltimore Orioles. One of the most uh, quality teammates I've ever had. Funny, hilarious, but at the same time intense. Um, would call a guy out for not doing their job. Um, and I don't know, he's just one of the, my, my favorite teammates of all time. And we talked about, you know, his Major League Baseball records, uh, the most consecutive errorless games at shortstop was 114 or 112 or something like that. The most chances handled in a season, uh, the most double play or the most assists in a season and did not win the gold glove. He made the, he made one error the entire season at shortstop playing 150 plus games and did not win the gold glove, which is one of the biggest absurdities uh, that I've ever seen in my baseball career. Nothing takes the cake of the, the first base gold glove that you, you told me. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's the crazy. No one believes me when I, when I use that one now, when I tell people that they always fact check me. I'm like, look, that's a good one. The craziest thing I've ever seen. So interesting here though, Mordick's great. And like you said, a machine at shortstop, but what about Cal Ripken Jr.? Well, I only played with him at third base. I didn't play with him at shortstop. Ah. He had moved over already. So, um, and like I said, there might be backups to the guys that that um, I mentioned. These aren't like the only great teammates I had and the only great shortstop that I had uh, as teammates. But no, only one guy, that, only one player can make each spot. I, it's, it's that's it's what not, it is. So I can I can have some honorable mentions, maybe. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, the guys is, that I picked. This is your team. This is your team. So we got first base and second base. Let's go second base first. Who's playing second there? Second base. Um, man, this is this is a tough one for me because um, one of my best friends in baseball is Brian Roberts uh, from Baltimore, an all-star second baseman, um, uh, an amazing player, amazing hitter, even a more amazing human being and just an all-around phenomenal guy. 
Um, he was coming up as a rookie when I was kind of going out as, you know, the elder statesman. So um, he was one of those guys that, you know, when you talk about taking a guy under your wing and teaching him the ropes of the big leagues and things like that, he was that guy that just wanted every piece of information he could absorb. So I kind of took him under the wing and, and just, he was, you know, really struggling the first couple of years he played. Um, we had Mike Hargrove was our manager at the time, and uh, he was tough on rookies. That's all there was to it. He was tough on rookies. Brian Roberts as a kind of a uh, – he wasn't cocky at all, kind of unconfident uh, rookie coming up, was very influenced by what his manager thought. And Hargrove gave him a hard time, but and he, he struggled mentally for a while. But um, he took care of that, obviously, became an all-star, 50-plus double guy every single year and um, one of the best second basemen I played with. I actually had the pleasure to meet Brian Roberts, and I can corroborate everything you said about about how kind and, and just a good guy he is. When I was broadcasting for the Katua Kettleers, uh, where Brian Roberts' father, Mike Roberts, is the manager, has been for nearly 20 years now, and you know Brian would come around to some of the ball games, help out with the team, and I introduced myself and uh, – of course, I mentioned I mentioned you because I knew you guys overlapped. And he said, "Nine? Are you kidding me?" He, he was he was my mentor. He said the same thing, um, and just such a nice guy. Both him and, and his father, uh, Mike Roberts, crazy passion for the game uh, has been doing it in the Cape League for forever. Uh, but it was it was a special summer with with both of them being able to to be out there with them. They end up winning the Cape League final. You know, Mike Roberts just was really emotional about it because he had just lost his wife and, and Brian's uh, Brian's mother. And uh, to, to win that, it was really cool. But just spending that summer there and seeing Brian and interacting with him can 100 percent attest to the fact that he is a really, really good guy. And you mentioned a great career as well. And speed. He could hit the ball, split the gaps, like you said, doubles, played good defense. I think he swiped 30 bags on multiple occasions. If I'm not, maybe more than, he might have had 40 one year too. He I, might have 40 mistaken. one year. So 40 that, 50 one year, actually. So I, I said before that we were going with guys in their prime. Are we more so going with guys that, where they were at when you played with them? Is that how you structured this? Well, you said teammates. So yeah. This so we'll go with teammate that team. So it doesn't Good. necessarily mean that they were in their prime or they had the best years okay. then, but that's more for the listener just, just to be transparent. So that was my, my mistake. We're going with where they were at when they were your teammate, which makes more sense, honestly. So first base. And, well, I got to do an, a quick honorable mention for second base and, and one of the toughest uh, gamer players I ever played with was Chase Utley. And I didn't play with him long. I was only in the big leagues uh, when I got traded over to Phillies for a month with the Phillies. How you played for the Phillies. I was and like, why don't you Chase, play with Chase Utley? Chase Hutley was just, uh, you want nine of them at every position. Like this guy was as tough as they get, uh, as hard nosed a player as you get, play the game the right way. Um, just that kind of guy that you really want going to battle with you. Yeah. You know, he, he actually got a little bit of flack for playing so hard when he went into second base and, uh, you know, took out the shortstop. And I, I'm trying to remember, why am I drawing a blank on who it was, but Oh, the it was Dodgers. Pedroia. It was in the playoffs. Was it Pedroia that he took out? No, it was for the Dodgers in the playoffs, I think. Oh, Machado? No. Um, I mean, I think he broke the guy's leg. Uh, I can't remember who it was, though. Yeah. Trying to break up a double play. Why am I drawing a blank on that? It was It was a short. It was a shortstop for the Mets. Oh, Ruben Tejada. Ruben Tejada. That's who it was. It was Ruben Tejada and... Yeah, they didn't. Mets fans didn't take too kindly to that, but it was a pretty late, late hard slide. But that's how baseball was played before, right? I mean, that says that was the he old changed the game. rules. Yeah, he literally changed the rules. 
So first base. First base. Uh, this one was, um, you know, I played with some great first basemen, but the guy that basically came in in 1997 in the trade and, and took my job <laughs> was Darren Dalton. And um, that one was tough for me to swallow at the beginning because he took my job and uh, we we're going to be a platoon situation uh, because, you know, after the, I had a great start, really hot start. And I started struggling after that. And this was a year that Darren or Dave Dombrowski was given free reign to kind of bring in whomever he wanted to try to win a world championship. And they weren't waiting for me to get hot again. They brought in Darren Dalton in a trade and he was going to split time with me at first base, obviously a catcher with Phillies um, years prior, but his knees had kind of pushed him over to first base and ended up being a, a good first baseman. But you know, talk about uh, a guy that would lead the way in the clubhouse as far as how to play the game the right way and how to prepare for a game. Um, there was no tougher guy than than, than Dutch. So uh, he's my pick at first base. Uh, ended up being one of my favorite teammates of all time and uh, just an all-around gamer. I remember you mentioning him as when he came over in, in that trade that it did take at-bats from you, but the importance that he had in the clubhouse – was something that really helped solidify that team as you went down the stretch there. And uh, it, it seems to be uh, unsurprising that you put him in there, given what you'd said about him in the past. So that you, know, is you, you talk about guys that just get traded over to a new team too. And sometimes they're, well, most times they're just, they're timid. They don't know the guys. They don't really know who's in there and they haven't played with them. And Dutch took over from day one, man. He, he let it be known that he was there for a reason he meant business and he knew that we had a good enough team to win and he pushed everybody the, the right way. So we go to round out the infield here. Catcher. Who's the catcher? Catcher. Uh, that was a tough one. Um, you know, our first catcher with the, with the Marlins and, and a good friend and uh, one of the best defensive catchers I've ever seen was Charles Johnson. I mean, I this say, guy Charles was, was a stud. Absolute uh, a wall behind the plate. He could throw with the best of them. He could block with, I'd never seen anybody block uh, as good as he did. And I think it was either the first or second year with the Marlins. CJ is our full-time catcher and going into the last, I would say week or 10 days of the season, he had zero errors and zero pass balls huh. as a catcher, a full-time catcher. And he was catching Charlie Huff at the time too. So a pass ball is like, yeah, it's a given. You're going to miss some some knuckleballs from Charlie. Yeah, I mean, Huff. you got catchers using extendo gloves, like extra big gloves for knuckleballers. It was insane, and he ended up having – I can't remember which one he had, but I think he had an error on a throw down to second base, or he might have gotten a pass ball. But that was it for the entire season, and obviously he won the gold glove that year. So we're going CJ. Going CJ. Defense first there, but he had some good offensive seasons as well. University of Miami guy, correct, too? Yep. So South Florida guy through and through. I like it. I played with him again in Baltimore briefly. And then uh, he went to the Chicago White Sox after that. And he had some good years. He had some 20 plus home run years uh, as a catcher, which was uh, a premium back then. That was uh, How about now. Big news. I mean, I just don't find catchers that can hit I, right now. That would be that would put him in the one percent when it comes to catchers. I mean, the, yeah. no catchers can hit today. It's, it's unbelievable. Outfield. Let's start with left and then we'll go to center and right um left field was uh you know i was hard not thinking about myself because i played left field for a lot of my career but oh that is true that is <laughs> um, i guess we could go two corner guys go two corner guys so you go uh give I'm me two go right with, fielders 
like BJ Surhoff was uh, another teammate that I had in Baltimore. Um, one of the more serious guys you're going to find on a team. Um, you know, they kind of ca- call them Captain Misery sometimes because he just looks <laughs> like a like Oscar the Grouch all the time. But uh, he meant business. Great teammate. Wanted to win more than anything. Uh, and it showed. It showed in the clubhouse. He was surly a lot of the times. But uh, we knew him well. We could push his buttons and and uh, talk about just an all-around really good player. Could throw the ball well, play good defense, clutch hitter. Uh, just a good guy to have in your team. All right, so we got BJ in one of the corners. Who's in the other corner? Um, let's go to center field first. Okay. And as we're just going around the field, center field, uh, you know, one of the hardest working guys, one of the most uh, amicable guys you're ever going to meet. One of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Just a uh, all around tremendous person is, is Juan Pierre. I yes. Mean, JP was, uh, you know, tough to equal as far as uh, a guy that, that made you feel good. Every time you came to the ballpark, man, JP was just always positive. Um, probably the hardest working guy you're ever going to see. He would go uh, into stadiums that he hadn't been before. He'd go out in the outfield, like at two o'clock in the afternoon and start throwing balls off the wall to make sure he knew how they bounced when a ball would might go over his head or in the gaps when, you know, if he couldn't catch up to ball, cause he kept, he caught up to about just everything. So uh, when you looked at um, the way that, he went about his business. It was just, he's in the cage constantly tooling things and, and hitting and, and practicing. And he's just one of the, one of the great guys, one of the great teammates I've ever had. One of the better base dealers uh, really in the history of the game. When we look at the numbers that he was able to put up in terms of stolen bases, uh, one of my, he was my first favorite player and a shout out to my Abuela Mirta who diehard Marlins fan, was the biggest Juan Pierre fan you will ever find. And uh, she would go to every game just rooting for JP. And the guy led the league in, in stolen bases. I pulled it up just now three times. It's 68 bags in 2010 as a 32-year-old. And he had 65 with the Marlins in 2003 as well. Actually finished 10th in MVP voting that year too, which is pretty crazy for a leadoff, you know, speedster type of guy. I love the JP pick there. What's the other corner? Uh, the other corner, which um, he didn't really come up as an infielder or he did come up as an infielder. And um, with the gold glove, Mike Wool playing third base, you know, I'm wearing his jersey today. We had to put uh, Miguel Cabrera out in, in right field. So uh, talk about a guy that, you know, would do anything and play anywhere to have his bat in the lineup and, and did it with no problem whatsoever. 20 years old, he comes up, he's a third baseman. Uh, Mike Lowell comes back and he's a third baseman and he's really good at third base. So Miguel Cabrera, we needed his bat in the lineup. We had to put him somewhere else. So Jack McKeon put him out in the outfield, uh, gave a bunch of reps there because he knew Mike Lowell was going to be coming back. So he worked out uh, out there during every batting practice, took ground or took fly balls, um, you know, worked with our outfield coaches and became a pretty good outfielder with a, with a cannon for an arm and made some big plays for us in the postseason. So Miggy was just uh, someone that uh, was electric and uh, infectious personality-wise as far as his love for the game and his passion for the game, and uh, he's my right fielder. I'm glad you picked Miggy because I was looking at this lineup and I was like, it's good, but you need some power. So <laughs> Miggy, Miggy comes in, gives you 501, 
and uh, balances out with some power. I mean, this would be probably one of the most athletic teams out there and uh, probably the lowest strikeout rate in baseball by a good margin. But now let's go to the pitching side. How many pitchers did we did we pick here? Did you go with just one? Did you go with the rotation? Uh, I know I didn't I actually didn't specify that. You didn't specify that. Um, and I just picked out a few names that okay. uh, obviously some are closers, a couple starters, uh, relief guys, just uh, guys that I thought were bulldogs on the mound that, that I wanted up there in a big situation. And okay. We're talking uh, playoffs. So give me, give me three starters. Um, I mean, <laughs> Josh Beckett's got to be at the top of any list as far as going for postseason. And uh, I tell you what, this kid was, he was a kid. He was a kid. Yeah. He was a man in pajamas that acted like a kid. And we had a lot of fun with, uh, with Josh and, and he said some interesting things uh, and had some interesting uh, snaps every once in a while, but overall uh, he meant no harm. He was a good, good guy, a good, uh, good, you know, teammate to have in that uh, clubhouse. And like I said, if you wanted somebody on the mound uh, in a big game situation, he was the guy he would, he wanted to take that ball every single time. I mean, you guys don't win in 03 probably without Josh. Beck. No, 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 no. Jack probably overused him um, because he threw him in a, a game and he, I think he threw four and two thirds shutout um, in game six against the Cubs, which, you know, saved us basically. But um we don't win without Josh Beckett. That guy was an absolute beast uh, that whole postseason. To do what he did to that Yankees lineup, I mean, it's it's incredible. I, I always go back and watch that last little Posada play, tag him out up the baseline, and and obviously it was uh, just pandemonium after that, but not in Yankee Stadium. It was silent there. You could hear a pin drop. Uh, so the next pitcher, we got Beckett, who uh, that, that's somebody I, I would have put a lot of money on being in here. But now uh, I think you could go a lot of different ways. You could, but uh, the next guy, as far as intensity and a guy that I want on the mound, it's uh, Kevin Brown is probably the most intense competitor I've ever seen out there uh, on the mound. This guy wanted to basically throw a shutout every single time that he took the hill. And his stuff was, um, you know, you talk about an electric fastball. I don't think anybody had as good a fastball as Kevin Brown uh, in the era that I played with because this guy could throw it through a wall at 98 miles an hour and a slider at 91. And, you know, we played a game in, in Candlestick Park against the Giants and he had a no hitter. These guys weren't even coming close to touching the ball. And Marvin Bernard comes up as a pinch hitter late in the game. Might might have been eighth or ninth inning. He's got a perfect game going. Marvin Bernard turns around, and it's a 3 nothing game. So it's not like it's a one-run game. It's a 3 nothing game. Marvin Bernard squares to bunt when Kevin Brown is on the mound throwing a perfect game. So he pulls the, pulls the bat back, and Kevin Brown drills him the next pitch. Kevin Brown hit him the next pitch and Marvin Bernard comes down to first base. I'm playing first that day. And he's literally scared to death because he tells me that he was, had no intention of bunting that ball. He just wanted to take a pitch. And I'm like, uh, it kind of looked like you're squirting around pretty serious to bunt. And why can't you take, just take a pitch? Yeah. Well, the, the, the old fake regular sense. That's like some little league stuff. So he basically thought that he goes, he's like, please tell Brownie that I, I was not going to bunt that ball because 
he figured that Brown was probably going to drill him every at bat that he's ever going to have from here until eternity. And he was, he was uh, saying, please tell Brian, I, I, I was not going to do that. But, and I asked Brownie about it afterwards and he said, no, I just got away from him. But I think he did it on purpose just because that's Kevin Brown. He's crazy. He's, and he's, so you uh, think he squandered the perfect game? Just he still got the no hitter. He still got the no hitter. It was not even close uh, for no hitter, but he could have thrown a perfect game that day, but he drilled Marvin Bernard. It's unbelievable. But, you know, some guys, do you think they even know that they have it at that point? Like, do you think he knew that he had the perfect game at that point? Of or course. He just- it, whenever the pitcher says, I didn't really know I had it. Yes, they do. You know, when nobody's gotten on base with you the entire game. That's true. You haven't gone out of the stretch yet. You have not gotten out, that you haven't gone out of the entire game. I guarantee you he knew that he had a perfect game going at that time. So three, who's our final starting pitcher here to round it out? Then we go to the bullpen. Uh, three was, you know, like you said, I could go so many ways. Um, you know, I got Penny, I got Pavano, I got Dontrell, I got uh, Lighter. Um, but I think one of the, the best seasons, one of the good guys in our team that we had was, uh, you know, Alex Fernandez was one of the better starters we had uh, in a pertinent shoulder right before the playoffs, the NLCS in 1997. And um, there was nobody more devastated than he was. He wanted to be out there so badly, but this, I mean, he won 16 games that year, I think uh, all-star season all-star type season. And that's, you want that guy in the mound as well. I mean, those three guys um, would take the ball in any situation. Doesn't matter if they're hurt, they're not hurt. They want to throw. And if the manager comes out to take them out, they're making, they want to fight. (laughs) That's, That's what kind of guys they were. And you like to see that. And that's what we're talking about with Garrett Cole when he, you know, basically shooed Aaron Boone off the, off the mound and went out and finished the ball game. Like that's the stuff you want to see, especially from a guy who just got a $300 million deal. Uh, he could just mail it in. And uh, that was great to see. And you don't see it as much today, especially with all the concerns with injuries and stuff, but uh, that's definitely a quality you look for in an arm. So now we go to the bullpen and I think I know who you might pick, but let's see who we got here. Uh, let's well, you, how, know, you know, my first pick, he was a yeah, guest on our show. It's and gotta be, it's, it's our, it's our first guest. Rob Nan was, uh, you know, one of my best friends, uh, in baseball and just a quality human being and, uh, had one of the nastiest deliveries and, and nastiest pitches of all time. And, um, the Terminator you know, don't let the nice guy, uh, facade fool you either. He wanted to get you out as, as much as anybody. And he was a bulldog on the mound and, uh, he's definitely a pick for my bullpen. He was, he had some of the best my, uh, relieving seasons I think we've ever seen. And, uh, that toe tap with the slider and the heater that you talked about, you throw throwing a hundred before a hundred was even a thing, uh, it's pretty darn cool. So that's Nen. We'll go two more relievers who we got. Uh, another one that I played with my first year, uh, Brian Harvey was, Brian Harvey. um, at that time, one of the most lights out, I think he led the league in saves that year. We only won 64 games and he, he saved 46 of them. Oh my gosh. With a one something ERA. And he had probably one of the most devastating pitches. He had a fork ball that was probably one of the most de- devastating pitches uh, I've ever seen from any pitcher. You know, he had a straight over the top fastball that had a really good down angle is it was didn't move a whole lot but it was 95 miles an hour and from that exact same position he would throw this he called it a fork ball split finger whatever you want to call it that would just go on that same exact plane that his fastball would but it never made it to the plate 
He very seldom threw it for a strike, but he would get so many swings and misses from major league hitters at this pitch. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a pitch make major league hitters look worse than Brian Harvey's split finger. Would it just look like a fastball coming in and just drops? The amazing arm speed, the the rotation, because it was a split finger, kind of had that fastball rotation, but it just didn't have the velocity. But it looked like his 95 uh, because it was straight over the top as well. And, man, you start your swing, and that thing would be either in the dirt or the catcher's almost scooping it out at home plate. And like I said, I've never seen a pitch make more major league hitters look stupid than that pitch. It's the hardest pitch to hit in Wii baseball as well. Uh, it just drops <laughs> off the table. So who is the third reliever to round things out here? Um, I'm going to go with another guy that uh, was tough as nails, kind of a specialist, but he might have been our most valuable player in the playoffs in 1997. That's Dennis Cook. You know, he was an outfielder. All I think he was an All-American outfielder in Texas or someone as a hitter uh, ends up switching to pitching and in that postseason, he had 11 or 12 appearances. And I think he gave up one run and like one hit, maybe it was lights out. He was as intense as they come um, as far as uh, being a bulldog on the mound and, and being a competitor and being a good guy. And had a, he was a great family guy and just a great guy, a pleasure to have in the clubhouse. Um, so cookie would be my third reliever. And this team now, we look at this ball club missing a little bit of power, but a nasty one, two, three punch in the rotation, nasty back end of the bullpen and a bunch of just pure hitters. How do you think this team fares in today's game? This team wins a lot of games in today's game because, you know because it's a collection of baseball players. They all go. know how to play the game the right way. They know what it takes to win. They know situational hitting. They know how to be good leaders in the clubhouse, how to pick up your teammates and uh, have each other's back and are good people on top of that. It's just a, an all good time, good family type team that would get the job done even in today's game for sure. And I want to emphasize the importance of this too, because you've talked so many times about how important what happens off the field is in terms of a team's success. Obviously the little intricacies too of, of situational hitting, being more about the team than, than yourself when it comes to trying to go yard versus moving the runner over and all those good things. And these are all things that those guys did, but you put this team together because I said to you, you got to win a playoff series. You put this team together based on the guys that you know will work well together and you can lean on and they can lean on you. And, and that's why I think this team is really interesting because it's almost like, as I'm realizing it, because you love to, to talk about gamers, this is almost like the all gamer team. Right. It's just a group of gamers. That's it. That's what you, you know, you asked me for my favorite clubhouse guys and um, they were all studs as players as well for the most part, but they just had that it factor in the clubhouse and they knew um, they respected the game. They respected the history of the game. They respect the other players in their teams. They didn't showboat. They just uh, was a team that this team would be a, a team that, you know, you'd love to go to battle with every single day. There's not one guy that we would like say, nah, you know, he's good most of the time, but I don't want him on my team. You want every one of these guys on your team. I love that. So to wrap up here, I'm going to hit you with a trivia question on yourself. And this is one that I honestly am not expecting you to get. Which year did you hit the most triples 
And how many was it? This is a tough one because you'll see why when you answer it or when I tell you. Was it in Baltimore? Nope. Is in Florida? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say the number was six. The number was six. Um, I got to guess the year too. Yeah. Let's say 94. You got it. You got it. (laughs) Wow. I thought it would be a trick question because that's a strike year. You only played 115 games. Yeah. And you hit your most triples in 115 games. That was impressive. I, I'm going to have to start ramping up these questions. I'm going to have to start ramping <laughs> up since, these questions. Since you kind of qualified a little bit. Oh, this will be tough to get, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think 94 might have been since you kind of gave it that little caveat of uh, a tough one to get. I, I, that's why I went with it. But what a year that was. Again, I mean, 900 OPS, uh, six triples in 115 games. The last thing I wanted to ask you then on triples, are those a little bit of just luck? I mean, like a double versus a triple, obviously speed, but, but that aside, because like for you, did you do anything different other than just hit the ball a lot in 94? Like you had less at bats there. You had some seasons that were close to 94, but never had even within one of six triples. Is it a little bit of just kind of luck where caroms and getting one yeah, or two I mean, triples unusual? Look, and we had a really good triples ballpark at hmm. uh, pro player stadium. So a lot of interesting angles out there, a lot of uh, deep, uh, corners that you could really get going. But I think mostly it was, I ran hard. I ran hard out of the box and I wanted to make the defense stop me. I didn't stop before the defense stopped me where I think, you know, in today's game, you see a lot of guys coasting into second base before the ball's even in the air yet from the outfielder. So there's so many things that could go on there. They could bobble it a little bit. They could overthrow. And then you see them kick it in gear for a second, but it's too late. And then, but then sometimes they're the play still live and they're like taking off their, you know, their body armor to hand to the first base coach. They haven't even whistled it dead yet. You know, it's like, wait a second, the play's not over. Yeah. What if somebody drops it and you're just standing there taking your stuff off? It's happened so many times. And I, you know, I'm going to pound this into our guy's head at FIU this year is that the play's not over until the umpire calls time. Yep. And you're going to run hard as you possibly can until they stop you. And that play is ruled dead because if you put your head down and like start doing this and someone drops the ball, you could have gained that extra base. That could mean the extra run that we win a game with. I mean, you never know. And then not to mention the pressure that it puts on. I mean, as, as an outfielder or as an infielder playing both positions at third, anytime I saw a guy flying up the line, just that little bit of, of, Oh shit. And you rush that throw. That could be all it takes. Or if I'm in the outfield and I see a guy take a hard turnaround second, I might end up just going for the throw and airmail it. You know, you're forcing more throws. You're doing all those little things. I'm excited to watch FIU play because I know that that's going to be something that you're going to hammer down on the fundamentals and the little things that is, I don't even want to call it old school because it's just good baseball, but it's 90s hardball in my opinion. And and that that we kind of got away from. So I'm excited to see that. We're going to talk about FIU as the season ramps up. We're getting closer and closer, Uh, but this was fun. I was really looking forward to hearing your lineup. So I appreciate you putting that together. And uh, this would be a fun team. Uh, Unfortunately, we'll never get to see them uh, play together. 
but uh, we'll, we'll see how many players from that list. Maybe we can check off in the future as guests at some point on the show, but uh, this was fun as always. Uh, I am in the just baseball studio right now, which I'm outside of the studio because uh, Peter is playing video games, which <laughs> makes it sound belittling it what a life. on Twitch. It's on Twitch, which we, we just enlightened you on. So He's doing the big Twitch thing. It's a big deal. Uh, but next time I'll probably be in there. Uh, but we're moving around. You're back home and uh, you're home for a while now, right? No more trips or what's what's next for Jeff Conai? Not much. Uh, I'm going to Friends Bar Mitzvah this coming weekend in Minnesota. Other than that, you know, we don't have much of anything planned until after our fall season's over with. Your your friend is, is 13? My friend's friend. My friend's daughter is 13. Yeah, so. There you go. Well, enjoy that. And uh, we'll be back again later this week with another fun episode and probably a little bit of a recap on Padres Dodgers, because that is just electric every single time. And I got to talk to you about that. But until next time, I'm Arm Waiting. He's Jeff Conine. And this is Outside the Box with Jeff Conine.